Welcome to this Pure Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.purevoice.com forward slash MNB. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Gilead Sciences Incorporated. Welcome to this Pure Voice activity on managing patients hospitalized due to COVID-19. This activity comprises a series of six streaming episodes with Professor Andrew Ustianowski. Hello, everybody. My name is Andy Ustianowski. I'm an infectious disease physician based in Manchester in the UK. COVID-19 has been around for a little over two years now. We've learned a lot. We didn't expect it to be such an issue. We didn't know how to treat it to begin with. But there have been pivotal studies pivotal data that's come through to inform us how best to treat individuals. And that includes how to give them oxygenation, but vitally specific therapies. What's the role of steroids? What about other anti-inflammatories such as tocilizumab? And what about antivirals? So what we're going to do is we're going to look at six different patients, all of whom are attending hospital with COVID-19. And hopefully we'll be able to look at how some of the data has informed my practice, what I do for these particular individuals. And I hope that is of use to you. In the first episode, for the first patient, we're going to be looking at someone who is co-infected with both influenza and COVID-19. So this is Hannah. She's a 65-year-old lady presenting with a three-day history of COVID-type symptoms, fever, fatigue and cough. She has been vaccinated and is up to date with her boosters against COVID-19. She does, however, have a relevant previous medical history. You can see it listed here, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, obesity. Colorectal cancer that was diagnosed and treated 10 years ago, now in remission, and sleep apnea and urinary incontinence. Now, some of those are really relevant for our predictions of what might happen to poor Hannah. We know in COVID-19 that diabetes is an adverse impact. We know that cardiovascular disease, including hypertension, is associated with worse outcomes, as is obesity. On her presentation, she has swabs done, which are PCR positive for SARS coronavirus 2, the virus associated with COVID-19, but also positive for influenza. She is pyrexial, blood pressure up a little bit, but she's known to be hypertensive. Pulse, not too bad, respiratory rate up a little bit. But what's more relevant to me are the blood oximetry readings, 92%. She's hypoxic on room air, but when she's given oxygen, luckily that corrects to 98%. The chest x-ray looks to us relatively normal, and you can see that the chemistry, CRP, procalcitonin, differential full blood count, etc., are all within normal limits. This is an individual that I think needs hospitalizing, partly to give her oxygen, but also I do worry that with those adverse comorbidities, her outcome may not be good without intervention. We mustn't forget about the more holistic care before we think about specific care. So we need to provide the right amount of oxygen in the right way. We need to make sure she's anticoagulated. COVID-19 is prothrombotic, and the increased incidence of pulmonary emboli, etc., is something that we need to bear in mind if we don't prophylact people. I wouldn't give her routine antibiotics. That's because actually those individuals coming straight from the community have a very low rate of superadded bacterial infections. 
we've got enough here. We've got COVID-19 and we've got influenza. Well, let's consider the COVID-19 first. Because she's needing oxygen, in my view, she needs dexamethasone or steroids. The evidence behind that, mainly from the recovery study, is quite strong. And then we can think about other specific treatments. What about antivirals? As you'll probably be aware, we have a few antivirals now, but in the hospitalised setting, such as this individual, it's really remdesivir that we would be looking at. This particular individual I'd have on dexamethasone and I'd have remdesivir. Another thing that we consider in some individuals is anti-inflammatories such as tocilizumab or cerilumab. However, at least in my setting, we would reserve those for those individuals with a raised CRP above 75. But what about the influenza? Well, ordinarily, we would treat influenza if it caused hospitalisation in an individual, given the fact that it's a co-infection with COVID-19, that she's needing to go into hospital. I would also be reaching for influenza treatments such as oseltamivir. So in conclusion, for this individual, oseltamivir for the influenza, the holistic care of anticoagulants, um, of oxygen, but specific treatment for COVID-19 being dexamethasone and remdesivir. And hopefully with those interventions, I'm optimistic that she will turn the corner, that she will improve and hopefully be discharged in the near future. The next case we're going to talk about is someone with COVID-19 and renal impairment. Hello everybody and welcome to episode two where we're looking at an individual with both COVID-19 and renal impairment. So this particular individual is William, 52 years old, presenting to the emergency department with COVID-type symptoms, fever, fatigue, cough, shortness of breath. Their symptom onset was about seven days ago and they were PCR positive on that day. Initially, the symptoms were fairly low grade, fairly mild, but unfortunately they've progressed. And they're now experiencing some more significant chest tightness and breathing difficulties. They also have a relevant medical history, hypertension control with medication, but that's still an adverse prognostic feature in the setting of COVID-19. And particularly relevant here is the chronic renal impairment that's known in this individual. Let's look at their workup. So they're RT, uh, RT-PCR positive for COVID-19 and have been throughout the length of this illness. They are pyrexial, but the blood pressure's not bad, the heart rate's not bad, the respiratory rate isn't too bad. But if we look at their pulse oximetry, 94%. Now, that to us is borderline. Actually, if people with COVID-19 have an oximetry above 94%, we're fairly relaxed. We may even be sending them home. But once it starts getting below 94%, that's really when someone needs to come into hospital for supplemental oxygen in our practice. The chest x-ray doesn't look too abnormal. And if we look at some of the lab results, the CRP is not elevated. They do have the lymphopenia we see commonly with COVID-19. The chemistry, procalcitonin and other things are relatively normal apart from the known chronic renal impairment with an EGFR of 45. So what are my chief concerns with this individual? Well, they obviously have COVID-19 and they're deteriorating on the borderline of requiring oxygen. The renal impairment is also an adverse prognostic feature. So I'd be bringing this individual into hospital and I'd probably be starting them on oxygen just to see how they're getting on. The overall holistic care that we need to provide for people with COVID-19, enough oxygen to keep their saturations high, prophylactic anticoagulation to make sure they don't get clots, etc., is vitally important. 
I wouldn't be giving them antibacterials because I think the rate in an individual like this of superadded bacterial infection is actually very low. But I would be wanting to give them specific other therapies. And the renal impairment may have an impact here. So, what would I give? As I'm starting oxygen, I'd be giving dexamethasone. Those people requiring oxygen have a benefit of starting steroids. And then I'd be thinking about specific antivirals. Again, of the several antivirals we have now against COVID-19, the one really that has the niche in an inpatient setting is remdesivir. Now, you always have to think with someone with renal impairment about the pharmacokinetics and whether we need to dose-adjust. Luckily, with an EGFR above 30 in this individual, we don't need to dose-adjust. So we would be giving the standard dosing, a loading dose of 200 milligrams and then 100 milligrams daily, subsequently of the remdesivir. If the EGFR was 30 or below, then actually we would have to consider what we were going to do. The license is for higher than this level. There is increasing evidence that we can use remdesivir in individuals who are on dialysis or have a low EGFR, and we would have to take that into account in a risk-benefit ratio for other individuals. But for this individual, standard dose remdesivir. What do I expect? I expect that they'd need oxygen for at least a short while. I'd expect I'd have them on anticoagulation and I'd expect to have them on dexamethasone. And I would commence this individual on remdesivir as well, provisionally for a five-day total course. But I do expect this individual to recover. Maybe not as quickly as the individual in episode one, but I still have a feeling that their prognostic features can be counteracted with the treatment that we're going to give. And the next case that we'll be discussing is someone who's actually readmitted with ongoing COVID-19. Hello and welcome to episode three, where we're going to be discussing a different individual. Someone who's been fully vaccinated, but who has more chronic or relapsing COVID-19 related to immunosuppression. So this is Benito, a 62-year-old man who's readmitted after being discharged for COVID-19. He remains RT-PCR positive, and I'll talk about that in a second. So what about his more recent history? He's had a previous 14-day hospitalisation for COVID-19. He only got out of hospital for three days before coming back again. During that previous admission, he was given a 10-day course of remdesivir. Now, what's really relevant here is that three months before he presented with COVID-19, he had his sixth cycle of chemotherapy for CLL which is now considered to be responding well. The cycle was fludarabine, cyclophosphamide, and particularly importantly, in my mind, rituximab. The patient has been fully vaccinated. So let's think about that to begin with. So the vaccines have been actually better than we expected them to be in terms of efficacy. But the vaccines don't work for everybody. There's a small subset of individuals who don't get a good response, but particularly those with immunosuppression and actually I would predict those on B-cell ablative therapy, such as rituximab, I would expect to have less of a good antibody response to the vaccine. So this individual, despite having full vaccination course and boosters as appropriate, I would deem as probably not having good immunity. And that might be shown by the fact that they've got severe COVID now. So let's think about their representation. So they're still RT-PCR positive. Now, I'm not too bothered by that. It's more their clinical scenario. People can be swab positive for a prolonged period of time, even after they get better. So it doesn't swing things one way or another. Actually, what's important to me is how they are. So how are they? Well, they've got a fever. 
their blood pressure not too bad, heart rate up a little bit, respiratory rate up a little bit. But their pulse oximetry is only 91%. That worries me. They've also got abnormal imaging. They've got interstitial infiltrates, which are unchanged from the first admission, though the consolidating infiltrates they had during that first admission have got a little bit better. And here you can see some of the blood results. A CRP of 75. A leukocyte count that's up, but a lymphocyte count that's down. And these are all relevant to give me a better picture of what's going on. What kind of treatments would I think here? We need to think about the more holistic care, making sure they have enough oxygen, making sure that they have prophylactic anticoagulation. Then it starts getting a little bit more complicated. Because they're on oxygen, I would be giving them dexamethasone. And what about the antivirals? Well, certain guidelines imply that antivirals in hospitalised patients have a place in the first 7 to 10 days. But guidelines are made on the average individual, and I think we always have to be cognizant that not everybody fits those guidelines. And Benito is a good example. We've probably all encountered individuals that have prolonged viral shedding, and in the setting of immunocompromised, that can be very prolonged. Someone like Benito might well shed virus for many weeks and have that pathology related to ongoing viral replication for that period of time. They've already had a 10-day course of remdesivir, but actually I would be starting remdesivir again in this individual, planning for another 10-day course. What else might I be considering? Well, it's interesting that he is so unwell, and that's partly related to his lack of antibodies or neutralising antibodies as a result of vaccination or natural infection, and that's a result of his chemotherapy and his underlying disease. So can we do something about that? We could potentially think about giving him neutralizing monoclonal antibodies. Now, we have to be careful here that the neutralizing monoclonal antibodies we'd be using are active against the predominant strains and types, variants of concern that we have spreading amongst our community. And we know that some of the earlier monoclonal antibodies don't have significant efficacy against strains such as Omicron. So I'd want an active strain, and I would be sourcing that and giving that if I could. It could be that they've got more superadded bacterial infections or other infections. They've recently been a hospitalised patient. So for this particular individual, I would be getting samples of sputum or respiratory tract samples so that I could send off for analysis, and I'd probably start them on empiric antibacterials. It's interesting that his C-reactive protein is 75, and in my setting, that's the cutoff for thinking about tocilizumab. Tocilizumab may have a role here, it may also immunosuppress him more. So I may not commence that on admission. I probably would be considering watching for a day or two. If he continued to deteriorate, and if his CRP continued to rise, then I would actually give tocilizumab. And even though some people may say, well, he's already significantly immunosuppressed, what are we doing? I think the important thing is to think about Benito. We need to get him better. We need to get him over that, and then we can consider about the immunosuppression later on. I'd be keeping a really close eye on them. And for the next case, we're going to look at someone with COVID-19 and pregnancy. Hello and welcome to episode four, where we're really looking at a pregnant woman who also has COVID-19. And this brings in a whole suite of other issues we need to consider. So first off, pregnancy. Pregnancy is actually an immunosuppressive condition, particularly in the later trimesters. That in itself may have an impact on COVID-19, as it does with other viral infections being more severe, particularly at the later stages. 
But there's other issues. Pregnancy alters our pharmacokinetics. So sometimes we have to consider different dosing and different modalities of treatment. Most importantly to me is we have to consider more than one person. We've got a fetus in there as well. So we're not just treating one, we are treating two individuals. So this is Claire. She's 33 years old and she's presenting to the emergency department with fever, fatigue, sore throat and cough. She is complaining of shortness of breath. We know she was actually exposed to COVID-19 and had routine testing and was found to be positive three days ago, though these particular symptoms have really come on over the last two days. In terms of past medical history, exercise-induced asthma. We know asthma itself is a worse prognostic feature uh, in COVID-19. Exercise-induced asthma, in my mind at least, may be less of a significant risk factor, though is probably still an adverse prognostic factor. She's otherwise healthy, but she is 28 weeks pregnant. Chemistry, CRP, procalcitonin, etc., all normal considering that she's pregnant. She's pyrexial. Blood pressure, 145 over 90. Pulse, not bad. Respiratory rate, up a little bit, maybe. The blood oxygen level's 94%. This is and that borderline where actually in most individuals, when it's more than 94%, I'd be happy for them to go home. I may be safety netting them and making sure that everything's in place and maybe if we can, they do home oximetry, etc. For her, it's 94 and she's pregnant. So I'm looking after two people and she's got some adverse prognostic factors. So if bed states allow, I'd bring this individual in and I'd be observing them. Now, unfortunately, there is data about adverse pregnancy outcomes with COVID-19. What treatment would I give? I'd admit her, but I'd actually probably watch her for the first few hours. If actually her saturations then settle above that level and maybe observe her overnight, and I would consider discharging her the following day with that safety netting and home oximetry. If, however, it stays at 94 or drops down, then I do think we need to give specific treatments. So she's an inpatient, she's pregnant, I'd have her on prophylactic anticoagulation. Once I start oxygen, I'd be giving dexamethasone. I'm not expecting the dexamethasone to impact the fetus. What about specific other treatments? Well, we don't have an awful lot of data. We have some antivirals that we're giving in the community where we're not recommending in pregnancy. Remdesivir, the license that we follow, says that it's a risk-benefit balance and that if, in the opinion of the clinician, there's a benefit of giving remdesivir, then we can do so. If her saturations, starting off 94, become 93, 92, I would be commencing remdesivir. It's not that we don't have any data. There are case series, including from the US, which have shown no adverse outcomes um, compared to the general population um, in terms of pregnancy outcomes for the mum or for the baby. I would be holding off on other therapies as much as I could. I would not be giving tocilizumab, even if the CRP was higher. For this particular individual, I'm concerned. We may get away with it. We may have to keep her in. We may have to give oxygen, dexamethasone. And if things don't improve, personally, I would be suggesting to her that we give remdesivir. Let's see how she does. And in the next episode, we'll be talking about an individual with COVID-19 who also has HIV infection. Hello and welcome to episode five, where we're going to look at an individual who is living with HIV and unfortunately catches COVID-19. And this was 
significant interest, particularly in the first wave. We predicted, as did many, that there may be a significant impact of the HIV on either the chance of acquiring COVID-19 or the progression to more severe disease. The initial data that came through showed that there wasn't a great connection, that most individuals with HIV, particularly if they had a reasonable CD4 count and were on therapy with an undetectable viral load, probably behaved the same as the general population. Larger studies subsequently maybe showed a minor impact of the HIV in terms of prognosis. But luckily, it isn't the great risk factor that we worried about to begin with. Jens, 41-year-old man, presenting with fever, fatigue, cough, and dyspnea for two days. And he is PCR positive for COVID-19. He's been HIV positive for 15 years. His current antiretroviral regimen is dolotegravir, TAF, and FTC, which he's been on for three years. And otherwise healthy and active, playing basketball, softball, marathon runner, much more healthy and active than I am. There's been interest in antiretrovirals for HIV as possibly having an impact on COVID-19. My view at the moment is the antiretrovirals are not having an impact on the COVID-19 itself, but obviously having a good impact on him and his immune system. What about his workup? Well, we've commented already that he is positive for COVID-19 on his swabs. Pyrexial, a relatively normal blood pressure, pulse, respiratory rate up a little bit. The pulse oximetry is what worries me here, 91% on room air. And a chest imaging, which implies COVID-19 pneumonitis. So these are making me worried. That oxygen level is not good. What about his lab results? CRP is significantly elevated. He has a lymphopenia. Procalcitonin is relatively normal. Luckily, his HIV viral load at the moment, but also when we look at his previous records, has been undetectable. He does well with this therapy, and his immune system isn't too bad with a CD4 count of 480. What are my main concerns? Well, as I said, actually HIV isn't the bad risk factor that we worried about uh, when we first had COVID-19 spreading through our populations. But I'm still a little bit worried by him, particularly because the trajectory is not being good. He's young and healthy. He has a saturation of 91%. This, after just a few days of illness, makes me worry that the trajectory is downwards. What would I do? Absolutely, I'd admit him. He needs to be in hospital. He needs oxygenation. He might need quite a lot of oxygenation. There is some evidence that high-flow oxygen uh, or non-invasive ventilation has a benefit in individuals. What I want to point out is the benefit of proning individuals even with relatively mild disease, people lying on their front, the oxygenation improves. And this may be something in a young, healthy person such as this that is going to be of use. I'd want him on those prophylactic anticoagulants. I'd absolutely want him on dexamethasone because he's needing oxygen. I would be strongly considering and I'd be wanting to put him on an antiviral. And as with our other episodes, inpatient setting, it's remdesivir that I would be commencing here. No significant drug-drug interactions with his antiretrovirals, etc., that we need to be concerned about. What about other treatments? He has a significantly elevated CRP. Given his rapid deterioration, given the fact that he's not well, I would be reaching for tocilizumab in my setting. We're allowed to with a CRP more than 75. Is there a concern about immunosuppressing him with something like tocilizumab and his background HIV? Well, who cares? What's going to kill him in the near future is not getting his COVID-19 better. 
So let's get his COVID-19 better, and then we can pick up the pieces later on. I actually have very little concern, and I look after a large cohort of HIV individuals, about people having significant immunosuppression, as long as I know what they're on, make sure there's no drug-drug interactions, and maybe compensate. Now, here's a different setting. It's just a short course. So I would be giving him dexamethasone, remdesivir, and tocilizumab. Hopefully, he's going to do well. I do have concerns, though. The fact, a few days into treatment, into his illness, he's already needing oxygen with a saturation of only 91% on room air, makes me concerned. He would be for escalation to mechanical ventilation and other interventions if we needed to in my setting. Hopefully, we can get away without that. And in the next episode, we're going to look at an individual who's progressed after receiving monoclonal antibody therapy for COVID-19. Welcome to the final episode. And here we're talking about an individual who is progressing in their COVID-19 symptoms despite having outpatient neutralizing monoclonal antibody therapy. So this is Alan. He's 50 years old. And he's presenting with three days of COVID symptoms, fever, fatigue, and cough. That he was a known contact of a, an individual with COVID-19 10 days ago, had no symptoms. But when he started reporting his mild respiratory symptoms, accessed monoclonal antibodies. He had Cassie and Indemi, these vaccinated and fully boosted against COVID-19. And medical history-wise, he's otherwise healthy. So this is an interesting scenario. We have someone who's had monoclonal antibodies in the community, but the symptoms are still progressing. Why could that be? Well, for a start, no therapy works 100%. What I think is relevant here, particularly, is not all monoclonal antibodies work against all strains. We found out that the more recent strains, particularly Omicron, a lot of the neutralizing monoclonal antibodies licensed on earlier data actually don't have significant efficacy. And who knows about the next variant of concern, the next strain that spreads, which monoclonal antibodies are going to be efficacious. Currently, his particular monoclonals don't really work against Omicron. So I'm not surprised he hasn't done well. And what I need to do is really work out what to do next. And that's based on how he is now, more than whether he's had these treatments already. He's RT-PCR positive. We know that. He has the fever, blood pressure, pulse, respiratory rate, not too bad. Blood oximetry, 96%. Chest x-ray, looks normal to me. And the other blood tests are within normal limits. Now, the key thing here, to me, is the oximetry. 94 or below, as I've already stated in the other episodes, I would want this person in hospital. 96, I'm actually happy if there's no other features, if they're not too bad for them to be at home. And I'm not too worried by him. He doesn't have the comorbidities that would make me particularly concerned. He doesn't have some of the other features in the other episodes. Now, if your setting allows it, it's good to send these people home with support, with pulse oximetry they can do at home. Because some people will deteriorate, and it's better to pick them up earlier rather than later. We're lucky we have a system such as this, so we'd tap him into this system, he'd go home with his pulse oximetry, and he'd contact us or others if there are any problems. If he does reattend, then it again depends on his oximetry. If he needs supplemental oxygen and hospitalisation, I would treat him the same way as I would anyone else. The actual receipt that he's had of the monoclonals wouldn't impact on my decision-making. 
So I would give him dexamethasone if he was having oxygen. I would consider the antivirals, um, particularly remdesivir in this setting. And if he had an inflammatory response guided in my setting by a CRP more than 75, I would be thinking about therapies such as tocilizumab. However, I'm hopeful for this individual that actually they feel rough, and that's not a nice thing, but they don't have any of the features that make me particularly concerned. Now he can go home, hopefully with safety netting, and hopefully he won't be coming back um, because he'll just get better on his own. I hope that's been of use to you. I hope all these episodes have been of use to you. They show how I use the current therapies and the current data in my practice. Things will evolve. We'll learn more over this year. We may have different treatments. We may use things differently. But I hope this is of use to you, and good luck. This has been an activity published by Pure Voice.